Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Roboticist Chronicles. I'm Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the program. Today we're discussing robot butchers. That's right. We're talking robot butchers. And joining me as always is Dan Alford, president of ARC Specialties. Dan, good to talk to you. Good to be on today. This ought to be an interesting topic. This, I mean, I think just from the outset, people are going to hear this and think, now that's interesting. We're talking robot butchers. So, Dan, from your perspective, what makes the meat processing and butchering industry one that is ripe for innovation with robotics? Well, because they're long overdue, and and you have to understand why is because uh, every carcass is different. You know, that that's one real difficult thing on food processing is they're they're not all the same, and so you need some kind of adaptive control, some kind of sensor system to deal with all that, unless you just grind the whole thing up into sausage, and so that's not going to work. And so the industry was traditionally not a very high wage industry. So there wasn't the financial motivation for people to get into this. And it was challenging because sensor systems back in the day, you know, weren't, weren't up to task, but now we've got the perfect storm. You know, we've got a, a couple of different reasons to automate the industry. So this could be the biggest, biggest innovation to the meatpacking industry since uh, Upton Sinclair wrote the jungle back in the 1900s, right? <laughs> yeah. What, what I think you're going to see is possibly meat packaged in different ways because, mm-hmm. you know, robots are able to do some things uh, better than humans. But, uh, you know, for example, everybody used to eat whole chickens, right? You know, you'd, you'd buy the whole chicken and that's not the case anymore. Right. And so that's that's a, a change in processing technology. And I think you'll see some of the same stuff here. There'll be more bone-in meat, for example, because when you're doing bone-in stuff, you can actually uh, impose your will on the carcass, so to speak. You know, you can say, I'm going to cut it right here. Yeah. Whereas if you're trying to, to remove it directly from the bone, ah, that's, that's more challenging. So uh, look for some more bone-in T-bones. Hey, you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. I'll slap a good T-bone on the grill or whatever, you know, whatever I'm using that particular day. I'm a big steak eater. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. But, you know, one of the things to, to note about this is that meat processing is an industry that's going to be traditionally, you know, hard to offshore, right? So for companies that here are here in the United States that are providing meat to the public, it's not one that, that as, as costs rise and as, you know, uh, labor costs rise and things along those lines, this is not something that they can farm out to another country because it's hard to get um, these types of products to and from other countries. And then you also have to, you know, th- there are a lot of standards around keeping meat fresh and, and frozen and things like that. So there are tricky aspects to offshoring this, which means that the innovation has to occur here in the United States. Right. And our higher labor cost, our higher standard of living, you know, drives that also. But you're absolutely right. You know, you we've got a lot of farm subsidies, so there's going to be a lot of food grown in America. And thank goodness for it, because, you know, if there's ever something that was strategically critical, it'd be feeding the American population. So you've got the subsidies in place. You, you're going to be growing the food and the animals here. And then at what point do you offshore it? Do you try to ship live animals across countries, you know, borders? I don't think so. You know, that, there's all sorts of quarantine issues. So they're not going to go across to be butchered. So it's probably going to happen here too. And then it's really not a high margin business. And so that's another reason to keep it here because that minimizes shipping costs. And the fact that it's perishable, you know, it's it's a perfect storm. This really needs to be done in America, and thank goodness that's the case. 
Yeah, and you know, on, on previous podcasts, we've talked about the three Ds of robotics, right? Dirty, dull, and dangerous. And uh, this has to tick at least the dirty aspect of it, right? Uh, I would I would get all three of these. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you know, he just reminded me years ago, I had a technician working for me and his prior job was in a slaughterhouse. Wow. And uh, I, I can tell you, he enjoyed building robots a whole lot better than, than the task <laughs> he had, which I won't go into detail, but uh, he, he was happy to get out of the slaughterhouse. So yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's dull and it's dirty. Sure. Uh, and people are dirty also. You, you really don't want humans touching your food if you don't have to. You know, I, w- I would rather have a robot make my hamburger than a human. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a that's certainly a fair point to bring up. But, you know, in, even as you, you take a wider angle lens, maybe at robotics as a whole, uh, I'm sure that there's been some movement across a lot of different industries to say, how do we get fewer people into facilities and how can we utilize robotics more to carry out some of these tasks just as... Uh, there's been that that emphasis recently on social distancing, on keeping people further apart, um, and, and surely that that has to play into this conversation as well as we look at everything going on around the the COVID nineteen pandemic. Just the idea of keeping fewer people in a facility and utilizing robotics more to perform some of these tasks. Yeah, I saw an article this week about the density of workers per square foot in factories, and one of the highest densities was in packing plants, and they're talking about the, I think it was nearly 20,000 cases and nearly 100 deaths of COVID, and, you know, but that's, you know, it's a perfect little uh, incubator for uh, spreading disease, having people that close together, so, and that's indeed what happened, so now they're losing people, and the good thing about a robot is they're, they're pretty much immune to COVID virus. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, pretty much hard, hard for a robot without an immune system to actually come down with, uh, with COVID-19. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a plus to, uh, to a robot. But, um, so from, from your perspective as, as, as someone that looks into these types of things and is always curious, always asking questions, always looking for different ways that, that robotics can, can fit into different processes. How do you view, you know, this, this particular aspect of this industry, you know, whether it's, you know, carving things like that. How easy is that to automate and how easy is that to fit robotics into that particular process? My answer I hate is it depends, but that, that's what I'm going to give you because it depends. If we're doing real simple stuff where, you know, we're always cutting, you know, across the backbone, for example, that's that's one of the cuts the butchers make. And that's a simple cut, pretty easy to do. We can impose our will on the part. Okay, so that yeah. ought to be the first thing you automate is, is the simple stuff. And then, like I was saying, the bone-in uh, that's relatively simple. You know, we can probably orient that portion of the carcass and then cut it. We can impose our will on it to make those cuts. But when it's going to get challenging is when we're trying to do things where we're trying to remove the the meat from the bone and yet not waste much. And that that's challenging and interesting to me. I'm looking forward to getting some of that work because then we will have to use all sorts of sensor systems I'm going to, we're probably going to apply something we, we developed for surgery here because in surgery, we need to know where the bone is because we're doing surgery on the bone and we're trying to, in that case, ignore the meat. But in this case, we're trying to find out where the bone is so we can remove the meat. You know, it's entirely different, but it's exactly the same. So we're going to be using surgery techniques for butchering. 
that's that's really fascinating and, and you're right I, I think that some of those initial cuts like you were talking about are ones that that feel like that's that that seems like a pretty easy avenue into automation and also you would have to imagine you know as we go back to, to thinking about the workers and as we talk about dull dirty dangerous um, but but one of the things is that I, I would guess that you would extend the careers of lots of people that are that are in this industry that are having to handle these these carcasses on a regular basis and, and that seems like pretty pretty high high intensity high labor type things that if you can automate that then you're saving uh, employees from injury you're saving employees from you know throwing their back out doing something and, and also just from exhaustion right Oh, and don't forget the repetitive task issue. You know, carpal tunnel syndrome has become a big issue, you know, because we ask the workers to do the same thing over and over again. And and that's the repetitious part that robots don't mind in the least. And so that aspect alone uh, would justify this. It's, but it's a perfect storm. You know, they this industry has been hesitant to do this just because of the the need for the advanced technology. But now they've got a couple of reasons to do it. Yeah, those incentives certainly seem to be there. So, Dan, have you have you tried to automate anything in the past when it came to uh, to food type products? And what what were the challenges then? And and how do you see those being solved now? I, I have limited experience, but uh, I did one years ago on potatoes, and 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 it's kind of interesting because the way we solved it, we were making potato skins. So that meant we were removing <laughs> the meat or whatever you call the inside of a potato from the potato. And so they, they'd already automated the uh, washing. They floated them down a Sudsy River. And then at the end of the river, you know, about three hours later, they're relatively clean. Then they automate, they'd already automated the cooking. That was just a continuous oven, like you'll see at some of the burger joints. Then they went to a machine that would remove the pulp or the meat from the center. And then as these 12 potato skins came out of the other side, they had several people picking them up and then placing them in the freezer. So you're going from a hot machine to a freezer and you're having to pick up 12 potato skins every eight seconds. It was a, it was a pretty horrible job. Yeah. And so we built a robot to do that. But my point of the story is they couldn't deal with all the different sizes of potatoes there are in the world. Mm. You know, that's, this was back in the eighties. Right. And so the sensor systems, vision systems simply weren't up to the task at that point. And so they had a pretty clever solution. They only bought number three potatoes or I forgot what the designation is, but uh, the number three potato happens to not vary in length and diameter by more than, you know, some fraction of an inch, which allowed us to assume the size of the potato and then deal with it in that manner. And that works great if you have the luxury of being able to get only number three potatoes or number three chickens or number three cows. But that's not the real world. That, that'd be too much waste, mm -hmm. particularly after everyone automates. So that, that's a good bit of yester tech there where back in the day we had to be selective about what goes in. But in the future, we're going to not be able to do that because you can't send the number two potatoes and the number four potatoes off to another factory. And that's where the sensor systems are going to pay off. Yeah, so that that development of uh, of sensors and the ability for robots to to sense things on a, on a much higher level certainly makes that a more a more feasible task than nowadays than it was back in the eighties. Right, in the in the eighties, we're just starting to use vision systems, but they're strictly two dimensional, and uh, so a two D vision system is useful. You can get the outline of something, but I can't tell if you're tall or if I'm standing close to you. We need that third dimension, and so now the the 3D vision systems, I think that's what's going to really make this work 
you know, to initially orient the robot relative to the carcass. And then during the process, you know, once we expose bone and such, then we'll have to determine where that is. And I, I think vision is going to be the key to this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you already know I'm not tall. So, uh, so that, that we can, we can take that out of the equation, but <laughs> so, so for roboticists and for, for people like you in the industry, Dan, what would it mean for the food industry and really for, for specifically meat, what would it mean for you guys if there was a large scale movement in the direction of robotics, what would that look like for you guys? Uh, it's just another industry for us to work in. Of course, I'm, I'm delighted with it. And, uh, and I don't feel badly because the, the, you know, this is the dull, dirty, dangerous, you know, this is the perfect job. And, and the only reason it hasn't been addressed is because it's challenging. And I like that aspect of it also. You know, there was a story that came out in the Wall Street Journal this week. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was uh, it was talking about White Castle and some other restaurant uh, groups starting to utilize robots that could dunk fries in a you know in a fryer and flip burgers um, and that sort of thing. And of course, the conversation at some point ends up discussing whether or not uh, this takes away jobs from people and if this actually hurts Americans that have those types of jobs. And we, we've had this conversation in the past, but again, you know, there, there are people who, who perform these tasks. So should there be concern over robotics coming into uh, to this particular aspect of the industry? Well, you know my opinion of it, but I'm going to go over it. You know, farming was an early automation success story. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we went from 50% of our of the U.S. population working on the farm to less than two and, and and that magic is automation and by in farming automation is tractors and planters and harvesters and things like that but those eliminated jobs like i said 49 percent of the population that was working on the farm is is out of work no they're not they're not just they're just not working on the farm now <laughs> they're working on other things and and so rather than just living at a subsistence level you know, if everybody's working on the farm and just making food, now they're off able to do creative things. So I just showed you where we eliminated the jobs of half of America. And yet nobody looks back and says, oh, gosh, I was wish, wish I was walking behind that mule plowing that field. It doesn't happen. So where are you going to draw the line? Uh, it, your washing machine put a, you know, a hand washer out of, out of work. But it's a good thing. Right. I, I don't, I, you know me, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> I have never automated an interesting, artistic, creative job. Uh, everything I've done is dull, dirty, dangerous. Right. Right. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know the numbers specifically around, around butchers and, and butchering and things like that. But one of the things we've seen is that automation has really come in in a lot of areas where there was going to be a skills gap anyways, where there wasn't another generation coming behind you know, the one that exists now performing some of these tasks ready to take over and ready to do some of these jobs. And so there seems to be in a lot of areas, a, a willingness of, of robotics and automation to come in and, you know, take that, um, take that process when there really wasn't a, you know, a, a, another generation of, let's say, uh, talented, qualified people who wanted to perform those tasks. They wanted to, you know, go to college and, and have different careers other than that. And so sometimes that's, that's the case where, you know, you, there's, there's an aging workforce uh, of doing a particular job and there's not a younger generation coming behind them that's ready to fulfill those tasks. And so that seems like a perfect place for robotics and automation to step in. 
Well, I, I did see that article you referred to in the journal this week. Uh, and one of the lines that really struck me was the turnover rate. 70% turnover in two years. Wow. This would not indicate to me that somebody really liked this job and wanted to make a career out of it. You know, they're, they're leaving and, you know, more than half of them are leaving within two years. So mm-hmm. I think attrition will take care of the reduction in labor. And, you, you know, I've told you before, this robot stuff's pretty hard. So it's not like we're going to snap our fingers, drop ship a bunch of robots in there. It's going to be a long and challenging process, specifically due to the adaptive control challenges, as I mentioned. Do those, do those challenges, are, are they, you know, an exciting thing for you to tackle? I know that you, you like having challenges and projects and, and you know, the, the next thing to work on. Is that an exciting challenge to potentially tackle here in the future? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I love nothing more than we'll, we'll, we'll come up with a new sensor or, you know, or a new sensor will become available. We'll integrate it into uh, a system and then everybody's looking for new ways to apply it. And, you know, the, the surgery analogy is a good one. You know, here we're trying to ignore the soft tissue and find the bone so we can do work on the bone. But that exact same sensor system, that same algorithm will work beautifully to find out where the bone is so we don't cut it. So, yeah, this is what my guys like. They, they <laughs> want to take one piece of technology. They want to take a proven solution and reapply it. Because if you simply reapply a proven solution, you don't have to reinvent a new one. Well, Dan, it seems like an exciting time. It seems like a, this is definitely an interesting topic to explore and one that, uh, that I've enjoyed today here on the podcast. So thanks for joining me talking a little bit about robot butchers. My pleasure. And everybody out there, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Of course, make sure you go subscribe there on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or head over to the Arc Specialties website where they have all the podcasts as well. There you can listen to previous episodes where Dan and I discuss things like should robots be taxed. Um, we have conversations with, uh, with the folks from 3M, uh, with Universal Robots, lots and lots of podcasts for you to check out. So make sure you go to one of those locations to check out all of the previous episodes. And of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes of the pod. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.